Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is The Media Mix. I'm Claire Atkinson. On this episode, we're keeping an eye on what's new in conservative media and chatting to Newsmax CEO Chris Roddy. Hear what he has to say about Tucker Carlson's firing from Fox News and also Tucker's show on Twitter. Roddy calls the Dominion defamation lawsuits against Newsmax, quote, political, and shares his thoughts on President Trump versus Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And finally, Roddy tells me why Newsmax is gating its existing streaming channel. Speaking of streaming, international soccer star Lionel Messi just signed with Major League Soccer Team into Miami. That's going to give a big boost to Apple TV+, Plus which has a 10-year deal to stream MLS games. We chatted to Jim Bell, who was the exec producer of the 2012 Olympics and is a big sports fan. And we talked back in June when news first emerged about Messi's possible arrival in the US. Can the Argentinian soccer star bring more viewers to Apple TV Plus? Find out here on The Media Mix. Let's get right to it. Here's Chris Roddy, CEO of Newsmax. I have with me today Chris Roddy, who is CEO of Newsmax. Chris, I've known you a couple of years. You are always an entertaining uh, interviewee. Tell us a bit about your transition from print to TV. You, like me, worked at the New York Post for a couple of years. How did you become uh, enamored with television? I guess it's a good question. It took a long time. Uh, First, I went from print to digital, right? So we started Newsmax in 98. I had been at the New York Post, the Pittsburgh Tribune Review, and uh, saw the growth of the internet. (laughs) I had known this guy, Matt Trudge, before he became famous. Um, He was starting to link, he was linking to a lot of my articles in the Pittsburgh newspaper, and I was like, wowed that someone could bypass all the media gatekeepers, because we forget, before the internet age, if you were not published in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the AP, you didn't get, people didn't get to read your material. It was just, it was very hard for them to actually read the article. Um, now it's, it's opened, uh, bypassed all the, the gatekeepers. And, yeah. um, and Matt was the original Pathfinder. I was very impressed by that. I started Newsmax and we did that for, um, we still have Newsmax.com as a digital media. We even went into print. Who goes into print? We've had a very successful print product called Newsmax Magazine. Um, Ken Chandler is the editor of that. He used to be the editor of the New York Post. Um, and, and then we saw the power of the internet probably around 2008, 9, 10. 
uh, with the video uh, reach and, and everybody was starting to get into video. Um, I was very taken by the access that it gave you. When we'd call Senator McCain, let's say, for a quote on some issue, you'd be lucky if his press secretary got back to you with a quote. Uh, but if you said, oh, we're bringing TV cameras on to do a video in your office, it was like, well, what time would you like to do that? And we would, so many congressmen and senators started opening up and other newsmakers for us. So we really enjoyed it, even though I don't think it was that profitable for us to be in the video business back then. And then I, as that grew, we, the OTT streaming developed, the streaming platforms. And I thought, well, this is the next big thing. Although when I looked at the landscape, I saw that, um, that the aggregation was just not there on these streaming platforms. There weren't many platforms to begin with, uh, and it was very new. And I looked at the, the layout with Fox News and the cable world and saw that there really was no competitor to Fox and that it was basically an open market in that area for us. Um, and that's why I, I launched the cable channel. But it started out as a video on demand that became a, a streaming channel. So we grew into it really over six or seven years. Tell us about streaming. That's a really interesting point that you bring up. Fox News isn't available over the top unless you have a pay TV subscription. Um, can you give us a sense of how many people are watching on streaming at this point? Is it a big audience? Yeah, it's a very big audience. What we find from the dashboard activity, and there's probably a dozen of these platforms, we have dashboards. Each of the dashboards are not always consistent in the type of data that they collect. But from what we can see, it increases the Newsmax audience from our Nielsen cable number by 50 to 75% uh, on any particular uh, day part, which is a pretty significant uh, number. And there's a, lot more, there's a lot more channels that you compete with overall in OTT now. Because when we started, uh, we were one of the first. There weren't that many competitors. But even though there's a lot more competition, we're still doing very well on these platforms. Is it a couple of thousand a night? I mean, can you give us any rough estimates? And, and does Nielsen include those when they're, when they're coming out with your ratings? For example, if Eric Bowling is doing 500,000 households per minute uh, at night at 8 p.m., uh, we would guesstimate that he would be getting anywhere from another 250 to probably uh, 350,000 on the OTT platforms, which is a big number. You have your own statistics. Are there any third-party measurement for streaming? Well, interestingly point? enough, you would think by now there would be. Nobody really has. I think Comscore has a product, but they, they don't have access to all the platforms, and nobody's done a good calibration or estimation. Nielsen says that they're coming out with a product, um, so we're looking forward to that. We'd like to get some attribution for our numbers. When's that happening? Do you know? I, mean, I think it's in the next year or so that they say that they're bringing that out. Um, but you know what? It doesn't matter for Fox or, or CNN because they're not, they don't really have a streaming live similar knockoff to their ch cable channel, right? So Newsmax right now streams for free. That will end soon because of our cable agreements and other things. We're, we already are launching a channel called Newsmax 2 and 2. You didn't want to call it Plus? No, well, we're not calling Yeah, exactly. Everybody calls everything Plus. Uh, but 
it's going to be Newsmax plus plus. So, so what you're saying is what people can see right now, then, and it's it's great. I watched it t- today. It's easy to access. Um, that product will be going behind a paywall because of your pay TV agreements, and we'll see something different in the future. Correct. But it will be similar in feel, I think, to Newsmax, and I think we'll continue to get audience on it. We do find the length of tune on OTT platforms is, tends to be a shorter than uh, the length of tune on Nielsen Cable numbers. But um, we do think that it's a valuable audience. It's a growing audience. The, the issue is I think Fox and CNN and MSNBC have a problem in that they're making their cash cow of these cable channels so they really can't ca- cannibalize them by creating a product that people can get for free that is similar. And we should also say that Fox News has Fox Nation, CNN, Candidates over the top product, but there's plans to have CNN programming on Max. And MSNBC's, um, I guess, partner streaming service is called NBC News Now. So everybody's there in some form, but it's kind of a different, nobody's kind of replicating what they're doing on TV in the same way that you have. All of them are pay too, I think. So, like, we're free now, and we will always have a free product. I think it's important. But, you know, we we do, we're, we'd like people to go to the paid channel, to the cable channel. That'll be our priority. And we'll hopefully promote that on the streaming channel. That's the plan. But uh, we don't fear the streaming channel. You know, Fox is getting, let's say, around $25 per year per cable subscriber, about over $2 a month. At least that's the estimates out there. That's a huge amount of money. So why would they want? I'm always amazed they give away so much free content on YouTube and other places. It's I wouldn't do. I wouldn't like. They used to take Tucker Carlson's monologue, which I think was the crown jewel of the whole property, and stick it free on YouTube. How much content do you put on YouTube? Well, we don't make as much money from the cable world, so we will put content on. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily put if we had something that was drawing most people to our. Our cable channel, I would probably not put it on, but we we do put on content. But um, so it's surprising that cable channels they do get a lot of money, but it's nothing like the type of money that Fox will get or CNN in the in the fee structure they get from cable operators. So the incumbents really have to protect that cable business to the to the extent that they can as as the audience shifts to free streaming. Um, tell me about the uh, ruckus with DirecTV. You had a dispute with them. Is this new idea that Newsmax will go behind a, a wall part of that new agreement? Actually, um, we had that in our other agreements that had started the year before. So, and I, uh, maybe a ruckus is a way to describe it. It was a dispute, a cable dispute. We're glad it's over. I think they're glad it's over. We have uh, uh, high regard for DirecTV. You know, we're encouraging people if they want to sign up through DirecTV, they have the streaming platform too. So we, um, we're happy we're on. And, um, you know, these things do happen. I know Fox was off on Dish for uh, about the same time we were off. So, and then now Nexstar is off on all of their stations. So I think you're going to see a lot more disputes, um, especially it seems to me a lot of, when you look at the numbers and the Kagan data, you know, probably we, we look through it. Most of the cable channels get license fees, uh, multiples of what we ask for and uh, a cable license fee. And most have 
significantly less audience than Newsmax. Can, can you share, Chris, how much you ask cable operators for? Well, it's a confidential number, but I would tell you that I'm giving you that it is a multiple, that from Kagan data, they're asking multiple amounts. I'll give you an example. Um, News Nation, Newsmax uh, has probably five to seven, eight times the audience in any day part they have. They're in 25 million more homes. I'm talking about absolute numbers that we still trounce them. How many homes is Newsmax in? About 50 million. Five zero. So they're in over 70 million homes, and they barely blip on the radar for Nielsen's. And yet, according to industry reports, they get about $2.50 to $3 a cable subscriber. I mean, if I was a cable operator, I would say it's, you know, theft, consumer theft giving them $3 when they have no ratings. Uh, like, and how do you justify that? I think that it should be pretty fairly done based on ratings. Is the cable business still a good business for you, Chris? I mean, everybody is writing about the fact linear viewing is down and like the advertising is moving to streaming. Is this still a good business to be in? As long as it has unique content, it's a subscription business. I yeah. think they're going to have to look at the model where people... Uh, all the channels that you can't be forced to get ESPN, you know, uh, 80% of the people don't watch a, a, a ESPN, and but everybody has to pay for it. And they have to pay a fee much more significant than they pay Fox News. What's the fairness in that? So, you you know, this, this bundling that they have, too, where you have to now ESPN demands you take five of their channels and you have to pay for all of those and you're not watching them. Uh, there's something wrong that, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, I feel for the cable operators to a degree because it does impact uh, their business and then it impacts the consumers wanting these channels. So I think eventually people are going to have to break up these bundles and then the demands that everybody has to take a channel. And subscription businesses are good businesses. Look, the New York Times was free for a long time and now it's a very successful product as a subscription business, the Journal and the Washington Post and others. So I think it's it's not going away. What will be the difference, Chris, between your paid subscription product, Newsmax, and the free one? Well, it's going to be very similar, but there'll be different personalities. We'll be covering, um, we'll be a little bit more like headline news because it's a shorter uh, period that people will be watching. So be a little more focused on that. We're also going to make it a little more where Newsmax talks more about politics. Um, we really have a focus there on breaking news. This will be on more general, will be include the political stuff, but also include general weather, um, general news, lifestyle topics, health, and things like that, which we think is more appropriate for a global OTT audience. Yeah. And both ad-supported as well? The OTT is totally ad-supported, and then Newsmax is a mix, just like other yeah. cable channels. So, Chris, I wanted to ask you about Elon Musk's Twitter. Um, it seems to be a place now where Republican candidates like Ron DeSantis announced his candidacy there. Elon also wanted to welcome um, Tucker Carlson to create his show there. Do you think social media is taking over from TV as the place to be for politicians? I don't know if it's taking over, but I think it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a very important platform. I think the his, the lesson of, of the modern age is you've got to be on many platforms. I saw you're on threads already. Yeah, you can't rely on just one thing. You should be, 
Newsmax is, I think we were actually been a pathfinder in being on multiple platforms. We're even in print. Uh, but we are on emails, we're on text message, push notifications, apps. Uh, you know, most companies are now doing all of those things, but initially uh, they weren't. But um, I believe to be on multiple platforms and radio, we, we like radio a lot. We do a lot with radio. We have a lot of radio hosts. Radio, we think, is still a powerful medium in the United States, especially talk and news radio. So the legacy media is still important. But um, Twitter, I think, you know, a lot of people get their news from social media now. So um, it's an important way to, to be communicating, especially with people in younger demo. And what do you think of uh, Tucker Carlson's new show on Twitter? Well, um, it's a little unclear what it's really all about. Um, I guess we'll have to see. Now, Fox did write a letter. It was reported saying that it was in violation of its agreement. Uh, and it probably, my guess is, if you look at a standard agreement, he probably is not supposed to be doing it. But he seems to be uh, uh, pushing the envelope with them. And um, he probably wants to be out. We do hear that he's reportedly in an agreement that goes to 25 and I think he doesn't want to be locked up, understandably, during the election period. And he's got a huge following, so it's sort of understandable. Would you hire him, Chris? We would certainly be open to a discussion with him. Um, and uh, we, would, we would welcome that. Um, you know, we would have to see what that will involve. My guess is, uh, A, he really can't communicate on those issues because he's still in a contract with Fox. But B, um, he really probably wants to do his own thing. And we're seeing this more and more, the podcasting. Everybody wants to be Joe Rogan. Megan Kelly's done it. Bill O'Reilly's done it. Uh, Claire Atkinson has I'm done doing it. it. Yep, everybody's doing it. And they like it because they feel that they're their own editor and they don't have all the corporate gatekeepers. I understand it. Um, I also understand, like, I haven't said Fox was wrong for firing Tucker. We don't. It is so odd. We, we still don't know why he was fired. My concern as somebody who's a media person in the conservative sphere is we see conservative voices constantly being censored, closed down, um, efforts to really hinder them. And this guy was the, after Donald Trump, probably the second leading conservative voice in the country, the number one host at Fox, the number one host in cable news. And yet he's fired, and they don't give any reason why he was fired. I think that's really unusual. Today, they still haven't given a reason. But even Mitch McConnell complained about Tucker, right? I mean, even people on the right complained to Rupert Murdoch about Tucker and some of the things that he'd said about playing down the January 6th events. And, I mean, I could go on and on. People complain about Newsmax. They complain about me. They complain. Howard Stern's one of the most successful people in media in all history, and I think he's a success by his complaint ratio. Everybody complained about him and made him famous. I don't. I, I think in, there's a value in free speech and important perspectives. There's now an effort to censor opinions, which is pretty, pretty, pretty uh, over the top. I don't agree with everything Tucker says, but I agree with a lot of what he said. Do, do you think it was a mistake for Fox to fire him? Well, again, we don't know the real reason why. There might have been reasons why they had they felt they had to fire him. Um, and we don't know what those are. You know, there was claims that had to do with the Dominion lawsuit um, and that there was some deal made. I don't believe that personally. I think Dominion's denied it. Fox has denied it. But it did come out his firing came a week after the suit 
And so did you have the issue of other discovery that, that the company saw out of Tucker's uh, personal messaging maligned, and others? He also maligned his bosses, right? That was in the emails. Supposedly, there was something that was more there, but um, and that, that that could have been potentially a reason. Uh, they have had, we know there's additional court cases. Um, was he complying with all of their subpoenas and requests on the additional court cases that they were in? Um, the Smartmatic, and now this Epps case is involved and others. So I don't know. There might have been corporate reasons why they felt they had to let him go. But again, I just think it's odd that he wasn't. And I'm concerned that as a conservative voice, he was fired. Um, but I don't see anything mal- that he engaged in any malfeasance, right? I don't see anything that, like, you, you're usually you're fired for, for a reason. He also say that he wanted to kill somebody? Well, I think he was saying, I, yeah, I remember that thing. But I think it was saying, like, emotionally, he wanted to join the people that were beating up on somebody, right? And he wanted to join in on it. But he realized that that wasn't a smart thing to do. I don't know. Was he using that as a rhetorical device? He said that he w- he was not right, and he didn't want. He realized that it was a bad idea, so it wasn't like he he was advocating for it. It was also the producer that was suing him as well, him and Fox News. Yeah, again, I don't know really much about that the Grossberg case. I don't I don't know if that was the case. If he had said things that were inappropriate. Um, but look, he's going to be a success, and Fox is going to remain very successful. Maybe a bit dented. Uh, we'll see how 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 that works itself out. I think Fox is changing. Um, my own view is that um, you know Rupert Murdoch. I once worked for him uh, at the New York Post, and I think you worked for him as well for a while. But I, I think he's always been a journalist proprietor. I think he's been very good to journalism and journalists through the years. He usually pays people pretty well, and he's pretty consistent. Uh, and I think he's made an enormous contribution to the media landscape, not only here in the United States, but Britain, Australia. There's just never been somebody as strong, uh, as conservative, allowing for these different viewpoints that go against the establishment. And I would like be on hard to think what this country would be like if Murdoch hadn't entered the fray, uh, probably spent a billion dollars in cash with the New York Post just to be a political uh, a force for uh, giving an alternative political view in this country. And then he did, spent, we know, a couple of billion dollars as a bet on Fox News. That turned out to be very successful for him. Um, my, my issue is I think that the country should have more than one conservative media, and one major media, and it's been dominated by Fox. And... I think that's a real danger because we do see Fox changing now and Tucker being fired and other things. So it's good to have more in the mix. Um, but I, I think very highly of, of Rupert Murdoch, even though he's made some digs at Newsmax, which are a little strange, but um, it's all good at the end of the day. Let's move on and talk about Dominion because obviously Fox News had to pay uh, almost $800 million in a, a defamation suit brought by... Um, Dominion and they're facing another one from Smartmatic and you know they settled just before I think Rupert was about to be uh, to speak about it in court Um, can you talk about where you're at with with that um, lawsuit I believe the company is also in the process of suing Newsmax 
maybe there was something embarrassing in the discovery they felt they really should settle or was better for them in the long run to do that as a corporate decision. I think it's a terrible decision what happened for journalism because basically what Dominion has sued, now the facts in the Newsmax case and the Fox case are different, but with the common thread through all of these cases that Dominion and Smartmatic are making is that Newsmax and Fox and others um, should not have aired the reports or the claims made by President Trump and his surrogates. He was a sitting president. And other officials, they shouldn't repeated court uh, documents about the case where they made allegations against Dominion Smartmatic. And if we did, we should have fact-checked them in real time and said Trump was lying. Well, uh, there's a whole set of problems, like there's neutral reporting privilege. You're going to have, you're not going to be able to report on court cases and what public officials say. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be sued. Every journalistic organization in the country is being threatened. Look through the court documents and the allegations made by both companies against Newsmax and Fox. Half of the allegations are if somebody came on and said the election was stolen, it didn't even refer to them. They're saying any mention of the election being stolen by Trump and his people referred to Smartmatic or Dominion. Uh, that, too, is just, you know, it's not the comments made by them were not necessarily of and concerning. The journalists have a responsibility to check out whether information is factual. And I think everything pointed to what they were saying as being not factual. And I think even Rupert Murdoch made reference to that himself in emails that it didn't seem believable or it wasn't believable. Well, the president said that he was going to have evidence to uh, support his allegations, right? And that was happening over a period Remember, these allegations started the week after the election, so you're talking about mid-November till about mid-December. There's a four-week period. I mean, if they're saying the allegations that the software was manipulated, right, how are we going to investigate that? We don't have any court power to go through. All we can say is that this is what the president said. Here's what Dominion or Smartmatic are saying, which we also Set, we, in the case of Dominion, we published what they had said about the case, uh, and we uh, reached out to uh, Dominion a number of times to come on the air. They didn't want to come on the air. Uh, so, like, you know, ex exactly what are we supposed to do? Um, there has never... So we issued a statement in December when Smartmatic and Dominion contacted us, a very sweeping clarification in which we said... There was no evidence that the Trump campaign has offered to indicate the software was manipulated, that they have offered no evidence. And we can't we can't say that that's true. We also can't say it's false because we weren't privy. We never did a forensic study. I don't know of any forensic study done on the software in any of the elections to this day. But Fox News never offered that clarification. Um, and I think that put them in a totally different position than Newsmax where they never qualified what they were saying at all. They still haven't, even in their statement after the lawsuit, and they settled. I think they did They did ask Dominion to come on air, right, several times. Sometimes I think they declined, but shared a statement, and I think that was aired. Well, we know that in the case of um, Dominion, they claimed they contacted us once. Um, uh, we don't have a record of it, a low-level producer. But when we did get their legal letter, we had acted. We actually had acted before the, the we. I was in receipt of the letter when we got Smartmatic's letter in December. And, you know, I wasn't really, 
remember, President Trump and his colleagues and associates were making not just three allegations about this. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of allegations about different groups and mishandling of the election, ballots, different states. There were court proceedings in, I think, six, as many as six different states. So there were dozens of allegations of irregularities. I don't believe any journalistic organization is supposed to or has the ability to go out and ferret out which ones are true or not. We, the chief legal analyst for Newsmax has been Alan Dershowitz. He didn't vote for Trump in either election. And he consistently said after the election, the election wasn't stolen. This is a lot of garbage. Um, so we never said the election was stolen editorially. And in fact, we called Joe Biden the accepted winner a week within a week after the election based on the state certifications. As soon as he got to 270, he was the apparent winner. On December 14th, he became president-elect per the Electoral College. We accepted him as president. We never pushed any of this stuff. Um, now, we had guests on that had opinions, including people that were uh, close to the sitting president or we were airing the president's press conferences. Um, that, that was his opinion. I think in America, he has the right to make that opinion. We disagreed with that opinion. Um, and I think any court that looks at our statement of facts uh, is going to agree that we were within journalistic bounds. Chris, you're, you're going to fight this case to the end? I believe that it just it's just the way this is laid out. And because of the purpose of these lawsuits, it looks like they really that they're not interested in some sort of comment or clarification because we issued that. They're not interested in, you've been a journalist for a long time, you know, you have to have real malice. They have no malice argument with us. They barely contacted us. We acted pretty much when we got their contact within a, a couple of days. Uh, we had given both sides during the whole period. We didn't even know who these companies are. It wasn't like we had a disposition. Dominion had no history of being a democratic co company. If anything, Dominion had a history of being uh, favored by Republican uh, municipalities and election areas and being criticized by Democrats. Yeah, you, you said you thought it was political. We probably should mention that it has ties to Bill Kennard, right? I think he was a founder of the company that owns Dominion. Do you think it's political? He, he's not a founder, but he he's... The company that bought Dominion is a is a hedge fund called Staple Street, and he's a principal there. I think all of that, all of the any involvement that he had in the case will come out in the trial or the discovery. So next topic, Donald Trump. We haven't been there yet. Um, I think last time we talked, you suggested it was not a good idea for Donald Trump to run for president again. Do you still think so? He's the leader of the pack by a mile, and Ron DeSantis uh looks like his campaign is not going so well. Well, one of the things we know about Donald Trump is he doesn't really listen to other people's advice. He likes to listen to his own. He takes his own counsel. As somebody once said to me when he was president, he doesn't have advisors. He just knows people he asks questions of. And you're one of those people, right, Chris? I would say, yeah, I've known the guy, man for a long time. I like him personally. I don't have, um, I don't have issues with him, but I'm not involved. People think somehow... And it's come out in all these cases and all these different investigations, Mueller and everything. I was not in all, any of these email trains. I'm not in the White House all the time. I, I don't get involved in campaigns. I try to stay in my lane. Now, if I see the president, he asks me a question, I might give him a very uh, interesting answer to something, but I'm not an advisor. 
Um, and uh, and that's true of any any political. I know I know people. Bill Clinton, I've known for years. He'll ask me some question. I'll give him an answer. Doesn't mean that I'm an advisor. But um, Donald Trump, after he lost the election, um, I had written that he should become president of the world. He's a very influential guy. He's liked. Uh, has a following all over the world, and that he could be more influential outside the presidency than being president. Um, well, you know, he didn't. He didn't take that advice. He's been very active. He's he's rewritten the book on what a post president does and and is involved. And you know, he's he's making history doing it. Um, but you know, we'll, time will see if it's been a good strategy or not for him to go run for office. Um, I think he. I think he would be a good president again. I think he he had a real impact. I know he's not everybody's cup of tea. I mean, he's the first president, former or current, to be charged with a crime. It seems pretty political to me, and it seems um, it seems like um, third world banana republic stuff. It doesn't seem so far. All of these th- legal situations, the local New York City charges. The rape allegation charges. The documents at Mar-a-Lago. Jack Smith uh, thing seems, especially when we know so many of these presidents have had classified documents. You know, there were 100 boxes that they said they found in in Mar-a-Lago. There was only 30 classified documents. Um, And so, you know, knowing Donald Trump as I do, I don't think he was sitting there reading these documents at all. I mean, as a voter, I'm kind of outraged that any any president should take anything from the White House that is our property and is sensitive. And especially storing it in a bathroom seems just the craziest thing. Well, up until 1980, uh, it was considered, I believe, that every president's material was considered his property, everything, all the documents. And it's later they created the system of classified documents and the president of himself has the right to declassify a document. Now, there's a certain procedure with a, a document trail on it, but I don't know if the courts, if he, Trump says he didn't think they were classified anymore and he took them. Um, but what, what I think is, let's say the president did something wrong, but other presidents have done very similar things and they don't get charged. I think you have to be, even though we want equal justice in this country, uh, everybody's equal before the law, when it's not applied equally, uh, and that same classes of people with the same circumstances keep getting away and doing the same crime, so to speak, it undermines the confidence of half the country in the whole judicial system. And I think that, I believe that this is all being motivated because Joe Biden is very angry that Donald Trump did not accept him as president. And that's the first time in history a president, a former president, did not accept his successor. And I think it's all being driven by Joe's personal anger. I understand it. I'm sure he doesn't like it. But I think his personal anger uh, against Donald Trump. And I think it's uh, it's a sad situation for the country. I mean, Donald Trump didn't even go to Biden's inauguration. Well, I think that was a mistake. I think Donald Trump should have gone to, and I think he should have accepted Joe Biden as the sitting president. I had discussions with him, not many, before he um, uh, left the office, uh, where I strongly urged him to accept Joe Biden as the president. I said, you could dispute the election and have an opinion to dispute it but that you should accept the constitutional process. And his view was 
that if he did that, it would be admitting the election wasn't stolen. And I said, well, I think there's a gray area here where you can dispute it, but you can still accept him as president because the Constitution, you know, every court has sided with Joe Biden. All the electors sided, the Congress sided. You know, you have to have a legal basis to say something's actually stolen. Uh, I do think there were shenanigans of the 20 election. I think there were irregularities with the COVID ballots. Uh, I'm not sure that it would have changed the election result. I haven't scientifically studied it. But we do know Joe Biden won that election by 7 million popular votes. Uh, Hillary beat Trump by 3 million. So even if there was some COVID issues of a million ballots or so, now, the popular doesn't decide, but it, you know, it is a democracy. It is a strong indicator of where the country is. Should Trump run? Do you think that Ron DeSantis or any other Republican candidates have a hope of chasing him? It's not my decision, should he run or not. He is running, and he's the front runner, and I think he's got it, unless there's something out of left field or in the legal cases that we don't know yet. But um, I think he's the nominee. I think he's going to have a very tough battle winning uh, because the country's been demographically moving more and more uh, leftward or more to the Democratic side. Um, and uh, most of the Republican uh, power has come from white voters who are over 50. And uh, they're dying at a rate of about, census data shows, about 2 million a year. So you're losing about, the Republicans lose about 2 million votes net-net every four years. So I had said to Trump when he was president, you lost to Hillary by three, you're going to lose to Biden at least by five unless you change your approach to the electorate. And his view was he would just energize more white voters, which uh, we know is becoming smaller and smaller. And I've always advocated at Newsmax since I ever started this, that the Republican Party to be successful has to be more of a bigger tent, more inclusive, and not be so uh, focused on um, so many issues to an extreme. Well, surely focusing on just white voters is not a great idea. Or issues that appeal to white voters. Um, you know, I think the country's becoming so ethnically diverse, multi-diverse in so many ways. So I, I think the Republican Party actually has a really good game book. It appeals to people. They, they like the opportunity society. They like um, the optimism in the Republican Party, like the free market economy and people can be successful and these things appeal. They like strong military, like safe streets. So then why aren't the Republicans, you know, they should have shellacked the Democrats in the last election and the congressionals. And they, they barely want, it was only because of a fluke in New York State where they won 11 congressional seats that they hold the control of the Congress. Mm. Uh, so they need to have their, a little wake up, I think, as to what the direction of the party is. I think Trump sort of gets it. You know, he was, I first met him when he was a Democrat, um, and he was a fairly liberal Democrat. Is he just pretending to be a Republican? No, I think he's really a true believer. He really has uh, become a true believer. He, 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 I don't think there's any pretense on it. But I, I think he thinks that being a conservative means sometimes you have to take these strong positions where um, there's more of a triangulation you can do on some of these issues where you can take liberal issues and use conservative solutions for them. Mm. 
And how about Ron DeSantis's campaign? It seems to be floundering. It seems like, you know, he, he just isn't catching fire with anybody. And I think, you know, what we read is that Rupert Murdoch had had hopes for Ron DeSantis and they look like they're flaming out. Yeah, you know, I get this is a difference I would have with Rupert Murdoch is I don't believe that media should necessarily pick the presidential candidate. I think it's I can't think CNN and MSNBC last time it would have helped for them to say we want Biden and we don't want Bernie. So they gave everyone a platform and they let the voters decide and people in the Democratic Party chose Biden, which turned out to be a pretty smart choice because he won, right? But um, so I don't think, I think Murdoch comes from a sort of a monopolist background where he likes to be the kingmaker and it doesn't necessarily work and it actually has a reverse effect. Uh, people don't like being told. So Newsmax's approach to be more of an open platform. And we're very open to Ron DeSantis. I actually know Ron, not as long as I know President Trump. I like him. I think he's been a great governor of Florida. I think he would be a good president. Um, I don't think he has the communication skills that Donald Trump has. I think he's relatively young. I think he can rise to the occasion. It might take a little time. Um, but, you know, there's he's got some shortcomings that are pretty clear, like he just doesn't interrelate with uh, donors and um, and voters as as well as he should, and the skill sets for that. Uh, but I think his strategy is um, to win in Iowa. I mean, that's why he's appealing to the religious right vote there, which tends to be very decisive in these uh, primaries, as Rick Santorum and Mike Huckabee discovered. Mm. Do you think there's any way that there can be a resolution between Disney and DeSantis? Probably, yeah. But I don't think there's going to be any resolution before the elections or over Iowa caucus. But I'm sure that issue will be resolved. Disney's important for, for the state of Florida. Um, but, you know, Disney sort of poked its nose into politics there where they didn't really need to. And so, you know, they got Ron did not like it uh, and he pushed back. It's been a good issue for him. I think it's not a hurting issue that he's doing. He's criticizing Disney. It's a good topic to get into for a whole other, another hour. But I wanted to ask you, Chris, before you go, um, tell us about your future at Newsmax. Is there an IPO on the horizon? Tell us about your backers. Can you talk anything about how uh, Newsmax is financed? Well, it's privately owned. I am the majority shareholder. I have a couple of smaller uh, private shareholders um, and it's, basically been um, through the company's success and revenues that we've really grown. Um, and we do think that there's an opportunity perhaps to go public in the next couple of years, maybe sooner. Um, as you know, um, the market has been sort of going sideways, but uh, conservative media things have done pretty well. We know that uh, Donald Trump's SPAC, which has never been accepted by the SEC, has done really well in the marketplace. Uh, as a concept, uh, but the shares of the SPAC have traded very well. And then Rumble, uh, which came out as a conservative alternative to YouTube, has also did very well. So we have been approached by a number of people that would like to do something with us. We're looking at those. Uh, we're not dependent on those happening for Newsmax, but I think in the future, um, you know, we'd probably like to do something. And I think it would be good for us to become a public company in the sense that we would I think the public really supports what Newsmax is doing, and we have such broad support. We're reaching about 40 million people a month through all our different platforms on a regular basis. That's a pretty big number. 
Uh, we've become the fourth highest rated cable news channel uh, in a pretty short amount of time without any major corporate backing, which I think is also a testament to not only us, but our audience. And, um, and we're buying with CNN for ratings. I think, you know, when you look at the Nielsen coverage rating, uh, we're t basically tied with CNN. Um, if you look at the proportional viewership, you know, they're in more homes than we are. So that's a tremendous sign. And I think that we've got, you know, a lot to do ahead. Chris, Roddy, thank you for joining the Media Mix. It's been really interesting to chat with you. Speaking of streaming, international soccer star Lionel Messi just signed with Major League Soccer Team into Miami. That's going to give a big boost to Apple TV+, Plus, which has a 10-year deal to stream MLS games. Jim Bell was the executive producer of the 2012 Olympics and is a big sports fan. We talked back in June when news first emerged about Messi's possible arrival in the U.S. Can the Argentinian soccer star bring more viewers to Apple TV+, Plus? Find out here on The Media Mix. Here's Jim Bell. This feels like a game changer, Jim. Tell me what you think about this arrival of Lionel Messi, this deal with Apple and MLS. And I guess I'm interested to know, is this going to change things internationally for, for Apple? Do people outside of the States care about MLS? Can it ever be a really big thing like NBA? <laughs> well, there's a lot to unpack there, but let me start with... The last piece, which is, are people going to care uh, outside of the U.S.? I think the first question may be, do people care in the U.S. Uh, about this deal? And and it seems like they do, although it may prove to be a, a tall order for Messi to be the savior. First, as you've noted, and is worth mentioning, depending on when this ends up airing, the deal doesn't appear to be done. Uh, Messi may have jumped the gun, but let's presume, for argument's sake, that what we seem to have learned out there is true. Um, look, first, broadly, it reinforces sports as you know, the tentpole for media. Uh, you know, if you're in the game of media, you need to have some sports uh, going on. And for Apple, that appears to be uh, a heavy investment in soccer, which does speak to the international piece, as soccer is, as we know, far and away the world's most popular sport. Um, now, the MLS is not quite there yet, it feels like, in terms of its popularity and growth and going and getting the biggest player in the world, fresh off the World Cup, seems like, uh, by all accounts, a, a, a shot worth taking. Um, for the time being, though, just from a practical standpoint now, I think I'm, I know that you know, I'm old enough to remember when Pele was on the cover of Sports Illustrated and coming over to bring this great game uh, to North America with the Soccer League and the Cosmos. And, you know, coincidentally, he was right around the same age as Messi when he came over. So th there, there, are, there are a lot of hurdles here. I mean, from, a, again, business standpoint, I understand it. If I'm in that room and this is, you know, we have to be creative and trying to find a way to get this guy over here. Sure. Um, when you get down to brass tacks, I have some reservations, let's say. I think, you know, as a friend described to me, we're in this sort of engagement phase where the engagement has been announced. It sounds exciting. Everybody's buzzing about it. He's going to come play, and that's going to be the wedding, that first game. And there'll be a little honeymoon period, and then it's what's going to happen. Is it going to pay off? Um, is it going to help the ratings or the streaming subscriptions? 
uh, or the team uh, they happen to be in last place right now. And, you know, um, <laughs> Messi, uh, not too long ago, just getting booed in Paris by his team there. And, um, you know, I'm also remember David Beckham coming over and getting booed in Los Angeles. So that's a good point. Did David Beckham really change the, the face of American soccer when he came over to Galaxy? I'm sure it moved the needle to some degree. Again, you have to sort of what are we defining as success? Was it more people in the, in the stands? Is it merchandise? Is it just more kids getting involved in the sport? There's a lot of ways to measure it. So it really comes down to what the incentives are and, and what, what the goals are and how we're defining success. But, um, you know, the other piece, the other comparison there that may not quite play in the favor of this deal is uh, Messi doesn't speak English. He doesn't particularly want to speak English. Um, and if you're the marketing person behind MLS or Apple Sports, and you want this guy to do the proverbial car wash of promotional appearances on morning TV right. and, and late night TV, Good point, <laughs> car wash yeah. appearances I'm very familiar with. Um, not only is that going to be a little bit challenging just from a language standpoint, but Messi is sort of known for not particularly embracing that stuff. And uh, no one's really, you know, he's at a point in the stage where no one's going to tell him you have to do this. So I think there's some things to be skeptical about. Um, but I, again, I also appreciate that if it's on the table, it's a shot worth taking. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of interested in the deal because it seems very creative. Lionel was offered $500 million to join the Saudi team. He turned that down and it seems like he wants a piece of equity in the team and to become a much more invested uh, investor, a sports investor, shall we say, um, from Apple's perspective, giving a portion of revenue on subscribers seems really interesting. My guess would be that Apple sees him as a beginning point and perhaps maybe signs other big sports stars. I mean, there are not that many. There's really Ronaldo and Messi in, in one league and everybody else in another. Um, but would you see Apple perhaps... Uh, digging deep and looking for other soccer stars to come do something similar with them. And again, like, let's speak to this idea of like the structure of it. Um, why would Apple do that? Well, first of all, they're Apple. I mean, if, if someone has an idea and I mean, you're essentially talking about for Apple, the, the, these are, you know, coins under the couch that they found, you know, in the, in the, in the break room. Um, you know, when we are really getting down to brass tacks in terms of the money, uh, uh, but Again, maybe there are other deals. I, I, I applaud the creativity because traditionally it's always worked a certain way. The way it's always worked doesn't mean that's how it's always going to work. So you have seen other mega superstars, uh, Michael Jordan, and you know, you're seeing some uh, talk about Tom Brady going into that next level of their career when they hit the certain stage and start to think about you know Derek Jeter, like, I want to be at that next level. And so good for Apple for trying to be creative in ways to attract a guy like Messi. And perhaps there are ways, again, it may not necessarily always have to be at that Messi-Ronaldo level, but to get other players more involved at, at, at different dollar levels, at different investment levels, at different you know, promises around what you know performance or how they do, how many subscriptions they sell in the streaming. Um, it, it's a great time to get a little creative with it. And when you have the financial flexibility that Apple has, why the heck wouldn't you try? 
Do you think that Europeans have an appetite or anybody, not just Europeans, Asians, Latin Americans, do they have an appetite for MLS, for watching American soccer? I mean, it doesn't really have a huge reputation, right, at this stage. I lived in Barcelona for two years of my life. And, um, you know, I, I, I imagine that some of my Catalan friends will be curious to see what happens with their former beloved Barca player, but I, I don't know that it's necessarily going to drive a ton of following in the MLS overall, more broadly speaking, internationally, but <clears throat> it might. I mean, his games, you know, if you're somebody who just is an absolute messy fanatic, and I mean, you and I both know what how passionate soccer fans are, both for their teams and for certain players, you know, you might just say, darn it, I, I Got to see this, you know, Inter-Miami against Salt Lake match today, and I'm just going to stream it, and I'm going to try it out this season. And whatever total number that is, and there are going to be those people, um, some of them may stick around. They're at least going to get exposed, and I think that's, you know, at the core of the strategy is just to say, we are simply going to get more people into our ecosystem. What will the retention rate be? What's the attrition rate going to be? I don't know. Uh, that. You know, it depends on the product. What kind of product are they are they putting out there? Um, if it looks like soccer and feels like it's pretty competitive and fun and lively and there's a big crowd and good announcers and the production's tight and fun and energetic, well, you know what? Maybe. I mean, you know, you might you're gonna you're gonna get some percentage of that. Is it five? Is it ten? Is it fifty? I don't know. But that's I think at the core of what we're what Apple is trying to do here in MLS. And maybe we can just kind of set the scene here. You were at NBC Universal. You worked on Olympics. Um, and we've seen a lot of broadcast sports moving to streaming. We've had the Thursday Night Football, which was on Fox. It's now on Amazon. We have Netflix chasing live sports. Um, we have Apple here trying to carve a niche in sports. Where, where, how far away are we from the streamers taking away the the main bread and butter of cable and broadcast? That's a great question. Uh, I don't have the crystal ball in my back pocket, but I will note that it there is, uh, I believe it was announced uh, a month or so ago, that there will be a, an NFL playoff game streamed uh, on Peacock. And that is a huge deal in terms of just an inflection point of all of this sort of streaming evolution and how people are going to consume content because once the NFL, you know, where the NFL goes, you know, once they're there, um, that's, then it's, you know, then it's happening. That, that, that sort of really puts the, the seal on it. Um, but it's frustrating. Do you think the NBA could be a game changer? Obviously, you know, it sounds like Apple would like to have the NBA. It's currently with uh, Warner and ESPN. Can they afford to keep it? I don't. Look, I, I think there's going to be a healthy level of interest. I know there's going to be a healthy level of interest because if you were, again, if you're in this media game, you simultaneously, it's three-dimensional chess. You're trying to figure out your strategy for when everything does get to streaming and what, you know, are you uh, ad-supported? Are you subscription model? And, and you're dealing with the leagues and what what's your piece of that pie and the league similarly are trying to dole these things out to as many networks as they can, you know, where it's the NBA trying to do with, you know, Turner and ESPN and now a new deal, maybe um, NBC and Peacock and Apple, whoever else might be throwing their hat into the ring. So 
there's there's a lot there's a lot of churn right now under the you know and a lot a lot of frenemies and a lot of people trying to figure out the next move. But as I said, you know, at the outset, sports is a tentpole for any strategy is important, and the question is at what cost. And the cost is is moving in one direction as it pretty much always has. Always going up. Absolutely. So I wonder if we can turn to women's sports. Women's sports seems to be on the rise. People seem to be more interested. There seems to be more revenue and marketing interest around women's sports. We have the Women's World Cup happening uh, this year. Tell me a little bit about why that is. Why all of a sudden is women's sport in whatever form suddenly more interesting to everybody after all this time? I don't know if it's all of a sudden. I mean, I think I go back, you know, 25 years to the Women's World Cup teams in the late 90s. And, you know, certainly on the Olympic side, women's sports has for a while now comprised over 50% of the primetime programming at the Olympics. That's, of course, because you have sports like gymnastics and figure skating where there's high level of interest in uh, the women's women's side. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, you've seen it now with uh, the Women's World Cup continuing to be this sort of must-see event. And again, it speaks to, in this sort of fractured, fragmented media universe, sports being a unifying thing. Sports being one thing that, you know, the powers that be can tell you, this is when it's happening and this is where you're going to have to watch it. You know, when we, at this time and on this device and in this service and like it, great. If you don't, you're out of luck. It's not like, well, are we going to put, what are we going to stream? Or let me flip around the channels and just see a couple of things. No, you have to. It, it, it is a form of essential programming. And so that's why it is this tenpole. It can be this. And, and women's sports has been wonderfully resilient in this time of this fragmented audience. It's still a place to gather. I mean, you saw recently with the NCAA uh, women's final four, you know, uh, with Louisiana state winning over Iowa. I mean, like they, they did something like 12 million plus viewers on all across all their various platforms. And ESPN has, as we know, a lot of platforms and they are, I should, I should add as a side note, we haven't mentioned them yet, but they are also along with the NFL, one of these sort of bellwethers for where things are going. And, and that, that, as you, as you know, ESPN is something that, you know, we have to sort of keep an eye on. As you mentioned, it always helps when you have a good team and the U.S. has a great women's soccer team. And the last uh, 2019 Women's World Cup, I believe, attracted over a billion viewers. So the viewership is there now. And I wonder to what extent perhaps companies and their ESG policies and diversity inclusion is playing some role in the thought process when it comes to where to allocate marketing dollars. Do you think that's something going on here that they're thinking we have to we have to show our investors that we are doing things for uh the ESG diversity and inclusion efforts I think that's generous of you I'm I'm I'm, I'm I think it's actually a better story that it simply comes down to being it's simply ROI I think it's good business absolutely no I mean and I so I, and I think that you know that's it doesn't need sort of an asterisk or, or another sort of layer of, well, yeah, but dot, dot, dot. Like, no, it's it, it, it's amazing competition. It's great business. You're seeing these rivalries playing out. I mean, gosh, the, the USA-Canada women's hockey rivalry at the Olympics is insane. I mean, it's it's 
truly like as compelling as it gets. So, you know, it doesn't need, you know, full stop. It doesn't, it doesn't need anything else. Jim, great thoughts. It's been wonderful to have you on the show. And Jim Bell, Head of Strategy at Newsbreak, thank you for joining the Media Mix today. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Claire. Thanks for having me. For more on this conversation, be sure to subscribe to the Media Mix newsletter on Substack. The link is in the description. Also, if you're interested in sponsoring or advertising on the Media Mix, email us at themediamixus at gmail.com. In the meantime, stay in the mix by subscribing to the show on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.